I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of James. And again, um, I'm thankful to the Lord as you turn there. We really thank the Lord for how he blessed the STEAM camp beyond our wildest dreams. And on the theme of waiting, STEAM camp 2024 is August 19 to 23. Please mark that on your calendars. And I know you can mark it on your calendars because many of you have these things. It's already, well, it's not yet on my calendar, but I need, after the service, I'm going to put it on my calendar, August 19 to 23, and hopefully I will not be jet-lagged this time. And as we wait, waiting isn't simply twindling your thumbs. Waiting is one of anticipation, but also of action. Because of the parents wanting to have something for the midweek, for the week, for kids, we now have the privilege and challenge of building on the momentum of STEAM Camp. And as part of that, Vicky and Emily are starting something for the junior high this fall. And for those who are not junior high, but kindergarten to grade five, don't worry. Joelle and Jen, opposite sides of the building, <laughs> of the auditorium, are working on a kids group. So, news to, more news to come, but speak to one of them. If the Lord is leading you to help, we would appreciate everyone's prayers, and we would love for some of you to join them in loving the kids and pointing them to Jesus. And it is providential because it is time to put our faith into action. And that is what James is all about. It is all about living faith. We have a faith that is alive, that we are called to live out from day to day in the midst of a broken world. As we wait for the consummation of the victory that Christ has accomplished. Now, you might have found our call to worship somewhat jarring or disturbing. After all, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from how long will you hide your face from me is not your standard worship sequence, is it? But these words are worship because they express an insatiable desire for God in the midst of life's struggles. And these words capture the reality of life in a fallen world. They give voice to the perplexity of the people of God in a world hostile to our faith as we live in the already and the not yet. And I chose for us to start our worship service with Psalm 13 because the original audience of James would have resonated with Psalm 13. They were Jewish Christians facing great hardship. And you sense the urgency of the situation because James dispenses with the normal pleasantries and he gets down to business right after saying, Greetings. Perhaps these Jewish Christians had been scattered among the nations because of persecution. But even if that was not the case, 
as people scattered throughout the nations, they were migrants. And as migrants, they would have been vulnerable to exploitation. And for migrants, building a life in a foreign land would have been a struggle then as now. Fifteen years ago, I was hooked up to a respirator in the critical care unit of Sunnybrook. I had an autoimmune disease that had weakened my muscles so much, I stopped breathing. No big deal. Providentially, I was in the emergency room of Sunnybrook. And so after my neurologist was freaked out, um, I spent some time there, and my doctors and I were frustrated because despite the best of medical care, they couldn't get me off the respirator. And during that time, it was no fun being fed through your nose. Neither was the catheter particularly comfortable. But that wasn't the biggest issue for me. Our future as a family looked bleak because I was the sole breadwinner and the boys at that time were barely old enough to go to school. So even if I did get out of critical care, the larger question was, would I be able to work as a pastor? Because our stay in Canada at that time depended on my being able to do my job as a pastor. And so here's what James would have had to say to us in our situation. Read with me James 1, verse 1 to 18. I'm reading from the 2011 NIV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. That does sound insensitive, doesn't it? When James tells somebody like me, stuck in critical care, on a respirator, wondering what's going to happen to my wife and kids, to say, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. But before you say, James, you're such an insensitive jerk, recognize that James is speaking as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one who speaks under God's authority, speaking, communicating the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ, him who loved us and gave himself for us. So what he's saying is actually for our good, coming from the loving heart of our God. Now, let's understand, he is not telling us to be masochists looking for trouble. Be assured, trouble will find you. James is saying, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's not if, it's when. Trouble will find you. As Paul told the believers in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or to reference the Dread Pirate Roberts, life is pain, princess. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. I mean, that's the reality of life in a fallen world. We will suffer. And that's why Jesus, when he invites us to come to him, invites us to take up our cross and follow him. Understand also that James is not telling us how to feel. Even Jesus, facing the cross, was troubled. So it's okay to be sad. In fact, the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist's laments. And there are more laments in the top 150 songs of Israel than there are psalms of praise. So that we are being told we don't have to be happy all the day. Rather, I hope you understand that James is telling us how to think. That's why he says, consider it pure joy. He is calling us to a deliberate act of trust in the Lord. Craig Blomberg has a helpful definition of joy. He says, joy may be defined as a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated, thankful trust in God. So in the midst of our tears, in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of our question, we can have joy because joy is resting on the reality that God is in control of all events And he is accomplishing his good purpose, even through painful situations, and even through the evil actions of men. And we can rejoice in the midst of our difficulties as we look beyond the immediate 
to the purposes of God. And that's what James is doing in verse 3 and verse 4. He is making the point that we should rejoice in the midst of our trials, not because the trials are fun. They're not. But because these trials are under the control of God and they are meant to make us more like Jesus. Verse 3 and verse 4. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's unpack this a bit. Trials are meant not to destroy our faith, but to test it, to refine it, to prove it. And as our faith is tested, we learn to persevere. Perseverance isn't simply suck it up, passively gritting your teeth, I don't like this. It is actively submitting to God and his purposes. In my case, perseverance meant I would get out of Sunnybrook after 10 days in critical care, but it would take 16 months before I actually could go back to work as a pastor. And in those 16 months, I had to undergo treatment and keep waiting on the Lord for healing, not having any guarantee of when. In fact, even after I'd gone back to work, it took another 10 years before my disease went into full remission. And all throughout that time, I was waiting. I was learning to persevere. And for those of you who have spent time with me, you know how impatient I am. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I learned to persevere because I didn't have a choice. But see, perseverance isn't the goal. As we're waiting, as we're learning to persevere, God is doing a work behind the scenes. That's why James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The goal is maturity. The goal is becoming like Jesus Christ. And it's a lifelong project. And James wants us to recognize that growth through trials is not automatic. We have to respond rightly. If all we do is complain, we're just going to get bitter. That's why James goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, you should ask God. Because he knows that apart from God, we will not respond rightly. We need the wisdom that only God could give so that we would respond rightly to the difficulties and trials that God allows us to have. So that our difficulties are meant to drive us back to God, who wants us to experience his faithful provision of strength to endure and his wisdom to respond rightly. And that is the challenge when we are facing trials. In the first place, to go to God and God alone for wisdom. We'll unpack what wisdom is in the coming days. But James also points to another challenge. We must ask in faith without doubting. Verse 6, verse 7. That means that we need to ask, resting in God's proven character, not doubting whether or not he is good. And that's why James goes on to describe God as God gives generously to all without finding fault. 
The Greek translated literally would refer to God as giving God. It's his nature to give. He's not like parents who say to their kids when the kid is coming back for his fourth serving of food, kid, that's your fourth serving. Haven't you had enough? No, that's not God. He's never going to say, you again? Haven't I given you enough wisdom? Don't you learn? That's not our God. Our God delights in, drawing, in us drawing near. That's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. See, God's generosity is single-minded. It is his single-minded determination to do us good. He is generous. He will provide the wisdom that we need so that we can glorify him in the midst of our struggles. And if you're thinking, well, I come to God when I think I need it, you really need, you really need wisdom. Because true wisdom is knowing in the first place that you always need his wisdom. So it's a given. Whatever circumstance we're facing, we need the wisdom of God and we've got to keep drawing near to God. But as we ask for wisdom, James also tells us that we should not be double-minded. Again, Craig Blomberg is very helpful. These are people who are unwilling to let go of the world and truly follow Christ. Torn between sin and obedience, reluctant to let go of the pleasures of the world for the sake of discipleship. This description hits close to home in an age of nominal Christians who attend church from time to time, perhaps even regularly, but he refused to let God interfere with their daily lives and goals. James is saying, don't expect God to answer your prayer for wisdom if you're focused on your own interests. And we've been there, right? God, give me wisdom so I can get out of this jam that I made of my own, of my own stupidity. See, God loves you too much to enable your foolishness and your selfishness. And I've been there. I've told you the story of how God exiled me to Jamaica so that I would live all by myself to make me realize how stupid and stubborn I was. And even now, it is a challenge to guard my heart lest I keep, seek the kingdom of self rather than seeking the kingdom of God. And it's the same thing for all of us. Our trials are meant for our good because they don't just force us back to God, they force us off the fence to examine our loyalties, and to acknowledge the primacy of Jesus who demands our absolute obedience and who defines our identity. And this is not God being some insecure despot wanting our attention. This is God, the fountain of living waters, crying out to you and me, why do you keep making broken cisterns for yourselves that can hold no water? I made you so that you may enjoy me. And here you are, frittering your time away in folly and frivolity. It is Christ who demands our absolute obedience and who defines our identity because he loves us for our good. 
And that's why James introduces this paradoxical role reversal in verse 9 and verse 10. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. James isn't saying that being poor is better than being rich. James is telling us that being in Christ defines our identity, not our external circumstances. He is calling for a radical paradigm shift to be defined not by what we have or what we're doing, but to be defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ. In August, you guys sent me to the Philippines to see the work of IJM, of the International Justice Mission. And as part of that trip, I met a member of what is called the Philippine Survivor Network. This young lady had been rescued from sexual exploitation and had been restored to the point that she is now a special education teacher. And as a special education teacher, she wasn't making much money. She was poor, financially. But in my conversation with her, she radiated joy because she understood her worth was not defined by how much money she made. Her worth was defined by the fact that she was a follower of Jesus Christ. She was a child of the King. And that was enough. On the other hand, if we base our identity on how much we own or the job title we hold, we're standing on a fragile house of cards. We can lose our job. An economic downturn can easily wipe out our portfolio. We need to understand the stuff that we use to prop up our self-image cannot bear the weight of our trust. And I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, right? This is old news, except that in our complacency and comfortable circumstances, we forget and we begin to get distracted. We forget that our identity is in Christ, not in our popularity, not in our looks, not in our fame, not in our stuff. And trials are a reality check. Again, during those 16 months when I had to wait on the Lord to heal me and I was at home, not working, I realized how much I had made an idol of achievement how much I had tied my identity to my being a pastor, to my being out there ministering to people, and how much I hated being ministered to. But it was good for me. And I, I will tell you, I shed many tears. But the tears that our trials induce have a way of washing off the grime that obscures our vision. And so we can rejoice in the midst of our tears because the trials that we face refine our faith, focus us on God, and help us become like Christ, 
as he draws us to himself. And so James goes back to persevering under trial. But this time, he shifts our focus from the immediate to the ultimate. He shifts us to the return of Jesus Christ in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's telling us that we can rejoice in the midst of difficulty as we look beyond the present to that ultimate day when Christ returns and those who stay faithful under testing receive a crown of life. James is referencing the crown that is awarded to winning athletes to assure us that God promises an ending perfect paradise in the company of Christ, of God, and all the redeemed. And this is true blessedness. It is a hope that enables us to endure with rejoicing, regardless of the difficulty. And if you're wondering how we could endure, remember, it's not about you. It's not about me. The same God who tests our faith provides wisdom to respond rightly and strength to endure. Again, Joel and I experienced this throughout that, those 16 months. I remember the doctors trying to get me off of the respirator one day and only lasting 30 minutes before they needed to put me back on the respirator. And obviously, we were both bummed. Joel went home and she got home you know, she saw Zachary, and Zach, for the one time in his life, um, wrote his own original song, singing God is Almighty over and over and over. And Joel just said, oh, that's right. That's God speaking into that difficult circumstance. But I hope you understand, God's unfailing love is the foundation of our own love that enables us to endure in the midst of trial. It's a relational category. It's not about, oh, God's up there, I'm down here, I got to suck it up so that I get a reward. No. Notice how James frames it. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial having stood, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's about relationship. That this God who loves us and who, because he loves us so much, we are moved to love back, enables us to endure trials. And we demonstrate our love for him by enduring because he is our faithful God who grips us with his grace so that we will not let go of him. But James also recognizes that there is a temptation inherent in trials or that with trials, we can be tempted to sin. And he wants to make sure that we don't blame God for the temptation. Verse 13. That's why I had us read Genesis 22. God tested Abraham 
by commanding him to offer Isaac. It was a test of Abram's faith and commitment to God. And God was not at all tempting Abram to disobey. In fact, having read the story, you know that it never crossed Abram's mind to even disobey God. He was determined to obey despite the pain of losing Isaac and of the promises that Isaac embodied. And as a result of Abraham obeying, he experienced God's faithfulness. He recognized that God is unchangingly good. And so as James would say, he would never tempt us to sin. So why am I tempted to sin when I face troubles? Well, James says, it's on you. Notice verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Grant Osborne says, a desire is a self-centered longing of what we ourselves want rather than a concern for what God wants for us. And there lies the rub, isn't it? Our selfish desires rear their ugly heads when we face trials because committing sin often offers an easy way out. But it's not an easy way out. It's the path that leads you down the deadly road to apostasy. And so testing is beneficial because it opens a window into our heart's disordered loves. God uses trials to expose our distorted desires, to show us our need for God's transforming love and grace. And again, the wise, God-given response is repentance. So that we can rejoice in the midst of our trials when we look at them through the lens of God's unchanging goodness. That is our comfort and confidence in every situation. That's why Psalm 13 has a movement from how long to but I will trust and I will sing praise. Because we know that this God who is allowing us to suffer is a God whose goodness is unchanging, whose character doesn't change, whose character is reliable. That's why James describes him in verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's absolutely reliable. His love for us has not changed. His commitment to do us good has not changed. It hasn't even wavered. And just in case we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, in verse 18, James points us to the ultimate expression of God's goodness and grace. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he, create, he created. He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about the fact that we are sinners deserving only of condemnation. But even before time began, God chose to give us new life. 
to make us new creations. And this wasn't simply a divine fiat. It was harder than the first creation because God's justice needed to be satisfied. And in order to satisfy that justice, He sent His Son. Jesus died and rose again as our sacrifice and substitute so that through His sacrifice, we might have new life. That's why I've entitled the series Living Faith. We persevere in faith because our faith is from God who gave us new life, who cost us who, to be born again, who gave us birth through the word of truth, the gospel. And that's why we can be described as those who love God. We have experienced the new covenant promise of new hearts indwelt by the Spirit of God. And Douglas Moo points out, as the first fruits of the new creation, we are the first step in God's plan to bring wholeness to all of creation. So let me pause here and say that if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, I hope you understand that whatever troubles and trials you're going through, they are meant to demonstrate your need for Jesus Christ. Because only those who entrust themselves to him have the blessed hope of a new creation where there is no trouble, no turmoil, no pain because the curse of sin has been eradicated. God has made all things new. That's what we are waiting for. We don't deserve it. In fact, frankly, on our own, we didn't even want it. But God has rescued us because of His sovereign grace. He chose to give us new birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. And that's the reality that reassures us of God's unchanging, single-minded determination to do us good. That good being defined as making us like His Son, Jesus Christ. He uses our trials and hardships to make our divided hearts whole by teaching us to depend on Him alone for wisdom. Our trials reveal where our hearts are disloyal so he might purge our hearts of idols and purify our love for him. And in the end, he even promises a reward that we do not deserve. We receive it because Jesus has won it for us. As Shane and Shane sang at the Sing Conference, by the way, we just attended it and I felt like I was back in Nashville with all the songs we sang. But as Shane and Shane sang at that conference, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. Brothers and sisters, that's the reality we live in. And that's why the psalmist can go from crying out, How long, Lord? To say, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me.
I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle you've already won. The cross of Christ reassures us that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that though you lead us through many troubles, and though it is by, through many sorrows that we will enter the kingdom of God, and though our hearts recoil, even now as we go through difficulties and hardships and questions that we struggle to answer, and circumstances in our lives where we are wondering, God, why? We thank you that in the midst of our struggles, your word reassures us that you are in control and that you are single-mindedly determined to make us like your son, to make us holy, and therein lies true blessedness. To be like Christ in his presence forever. And thank you that you're using the many difficulties that we're going through to reshape us, to break our stubborn hearts so that we may be made new and be made like Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to lean into what you're doing. To lean into you. To entrust ourselves to you. To commit ourselves to obeying you, regardless of the cost. Trusting that you are at work. Trusting that your goodness never fails. And that your good holy and wise purposes will be fulfilled so we can obey, we can trust and you will bring us to glory for our good and for your glory. This is pray in Jesus' name. Amen.